We're gonna see this week that that is not just God's sovereign grace that we're amazed at, it's also God's preserving power. We're gonna see this unfold in the next set of verses in Matthew 1. So while you're finding Matthew 1, let me go ahead and give you the, the big idea up front. So I think it's best this week if I kind of show you where we're headed, give you the kind of the end destination. And then I want you to watch this unfold through the reading of all these glorious names, all right? So let's read this together, can we? Here's kind of our big idea, our end destination. We'll see this continuously today. Here's the big idea. Say it with me, that God powerfully preserves his people and accomplishes his will, not because of us, but precisely in spite of us, yet for us. We're gonna see this is the underlying tone of Matthew chapter one, middle of verse six to the end of verse 11. In fact, let me just read this for you first. We'll just read the text plainly. It's just a list of chronological names. But as I've been saying for weeks, there's much more here than chronology. There's some beautiful theology. Let's watch this unfold again this week. Here's Matthew 1, verse 6. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. You're saying, Todd, what in the world can be in that section of scripture? It's just some names. How do we see God's preserving power in that list? Well, let's look at the list, first of all, not just in a reading as we just did, but let's look at historically. Notice, first of all, that it starts with Solomon, who, by the way, was David's son, and under his reign, it was the best that Israel had ever known it. Economically, politically, militarily, they were at their zenith. But notice at the end of verse 11, there's this, this idea of a deportation to Babylon. Here they are at their worst. Babylon had come in, laid siege to the city, and taken them away. And they were now exiles. So what you find here is an incredible trajectory downward, a spiral, a negative spiral, what I call from their heyday to their mayday. That's what's happening here. And I think the writer is intentionally showing us, wow, it started off beautifully and it has ended tragically. Now, some commentators, and I think this is true, by the way, they've noticed that in this listing of these names, there's kind of an alternate good, bad, good, bad going on. I don't think his point is to show that, okay, uh, it's good, now it's bad, now it's good, now it's bad. It's to show that even... In their good days, there was no earthly succession that could save the people. Even in the bright spot moments, an earthly king was not the answer. They needed the Messiah. So there were these bright spot moments, but for the most part, what you see here in these verses is this continual decline. I mean, look at some of the names here. You see Rehoboam is when the kingdom split. And in fact, from Rehoboam forward, you have no kings mentioned from the northern kingdom, which was technically known as Israel. What you have here really is a listing of all the kings of Judah. 
You have some that were good. Then you have some that were terrible. I think about Manasseh, known as the worst king of the bunch. And so just keep this in mind. This is really not designed to show the the character, whether good or bad, of, of a certain specific king. It's designed to show the general downward trajectory of Israel's history from when Solomon was in his heyday to suddenly Jeconiah and their mayday. Now, a couple of other notes. I might put this on my blog this week. It depends on if I have the courage to write about it because this is complex and in the weeds, but I'll just share with you a little bit about what I think is interesting. There are some names left out in this section, by the way. If you'll notice in verse eight, there's about three kings that aren't mentioned. Some say it's because they were connected to Athaliah who was a real usurper and destroyed even her own uh, kin to try to stamp out the line. You'll notice in the last verse, Jeconiah is mentioned as the final king, but actually Zedekiah is the final king. You remember from our study in the Kings and their Chronicles? You do remember that, right? You can nod like this. Those eight years we were in that. No, I'm kidding you. Don't amen that, please. Whoever said that over here. (laughs) Of course. Zedekiah is actually the final king. So why is Jeconiah mentioned here? Here's why. Because Jeconiah was the king that actually was there when the siege started. Now, he and Zedekiah were both puppet kings, Nebuchadnezzar. But the point is, he's mentioning here the beginning king when the siege started. So there's a few things. I think what's really going on here is this. I think Matthew has the freedom. I think this is true in the genealogy um, culture of of the Jewish nation. He has the freedom there to skip some generations at times as long as they're connected grandson or down the line and he's aiming to keep it at 14. I think that's really the big thing in play here. There were 14 names in the first section. There's 14 names in this section and there'll be 14 in the next. He's not trying to show, uh, and an, um, it's, it's accurate, but he's not trying to show a detailed picture. He's trying to show a poetic and numeric defense of David's throne and that it does end in Christ. And so it's accurate. It may not be explicitly detailed with every person's name. So there are some ways you can say, well, they left some people out because of their character or because of their connection, possibly. I think the bigger answer is this. He's going for a poetic, memorable way to show that Jesus Christ rightfully sits on the throne of David. Now, as you look at these this set of verses, and you understand that the general sense is this downward trajectory. Like, wow, there just wasn't any way that the kingly earthly succession was going to save the people. You begin to once again see our big idea that God powerfully preserves his people and he accomplishes his will, not because of us, but precisely in spite of us and yet for us. Here's why I say that. Because at the end of verse 11 They're deported to Babylon. They're living as exiles. And yet we know that after 70 years, they returned. They returned to Jerusalem. They rebuilt. They began to worship again. They inhabited their land. God brought them back. Now, now why is that true? Why were they back in the land? Why did God bring them back? And how were they able to rebuild and, and begin worship? It wasn't because of anything they did. It was strictly God's preserving power in the midst of their terrible decline. Everything they did brought disaster. It was disobedience. It was destruction. Their hearts were not fully after the Lord. And yet, in spite of them, God kept his promise. Watch this, that he made to Abraham and to himself. 
He kept his covenant and protected his people and eventually brought them back to the land. Not because of them, but because of his powerful, preserving promise. That's really what we see here. In fact, in these set of verses, there's an interesting connection to Jeremiah 29. Just, let's just stay on this idea. Let this kind of ring in your mind and think about a verse that we often see on plaques and you say sometimes. And, and it's, a, it's a delightful verse, Jeremiah 29, 11. But let me just make sure I read this correctly. God says to Israel that he knows the plans he has for them. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give them a future and a hope. We love that verse, don't we? But did you know that verse was given while they were actually in the middle of the end of verse 11 in Matthew 1? They were in exile in Babylon. And it's while they're there, in the middle of their punishment, their discipline, that God writes through Jeremiah this prophecy that I know I have a future for you and a hope. And let me just share with you some context for Jeremiah 20, 11, because we love to take that verse and kind of, you know, kind of sometimes use it as a, as a lever. Uh, and I don't think that everyone that banks on that verse is doing it in a wrong way, but I think it has been used that way because that verse is actually God's promise in the middle of their very difficult captivity and punishment and discipline. And it's really a, a verse that, that speaks of God's ability to to protect and preserve us in the middle of our own sin. If you were to read the whole chapter of Jeremiah 29, what you'll find is this, that God sent word, watch this in verse one, to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. It was to these people that God sent this word, and the first word he sent to them was this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens, eat their produce, take wives, have sons and daughters. Um, multiply, uh, do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city where I've sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Isn't that interesting? He's saying, you're, you're gonna be there a while. So plant yourself in that city. Have kids, multiply, work hard, get a job and pray that the city does well because you're gonna need that. I've got you there for a while. And here's what I think is striking that God gave this prophecy that their captivity, their discipline would be long. And there were folks in Israel who were saying the opposite. In fact, his name is Shemaiah. You'll find that in the end of Jeremiah 29. He was falsely prophesying that, you know what? God's going to get you out of here in a matter of days or weeks or months. Don't worry. Nebuchadnezzar's got nothing on us. God told Jeremiah, you tell the false prophet, that's not true, that you're going to be here a long time. And then the end of verse 14 says this, after God promises that, the end will come, and I'll bring you back. You'll call upon me. You'll pray to me, and I will hear you. You'll seek me because you'll seek me with all your heart. Watch this, verse 14. And I will be found by you. Notice all the references to God the Father here, the word I. Listen to this. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you declares the Lord, and I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. Isn't this amazing about God's preserving power that he actually ordained that they should be disciplined by the Babylonians for 70 years, and then he would bring them out of that at the right time. He was behind every single bit of this. Why was God moving them to Babylon in discipline? To preserve them. 
they would have probably self-destructed. <laughs> so God takes the Babylonians, uses them to, to come and lay siege to Jerusalem, to punish for their sins, to discipline them in order to bring them to Babylon, to secure them, protect them, preserve them through a foreign enemy, gives them a chance to multiply and reproduce and work and kind of regather. Then he brings them back to the land. Every bit of Jeremiah 29 is all God's power, activity, and character. It's not because of Israel. In fact, can we just be honest? They didn't deserve what verse 29, verse 11 says. Um, this plans for welfare and, and a future and a hope. They didn't deserve that and neither do you and I. But God is gracious and God is powerful and he's promised um, to preserve his people. And so he will do that. Watch this. In spite of us, not because of us. And yet, what I love is, it's always for us. Isn't that neat? You see, it's, it's, it's for us. It's just not about us. It's about God. And his incredible, preserving power in the midst of our sin. I believe this is really at the heart of Matthew 1, verses 6 through 11. It's God's preserving power in his people's lives. Even when their trajectory and their direction was continually downward because of their disobedience and sin. And so it brings us again back to this main truth that God is a God of preserving power. Now there's a doctrinal name for all this. It's the doctrine of eternal security. In fact, will you say those two words with me? Eternal security. Here's the uh, definition of it. Kids up here at the front, this is a good time to learn your doctrine right now. Just kind of take a picture of this or write it down. Eternal security. It's the truth that those who are genuinely united to Christ through regeneration are eternally secure in him. Notice some phrases there. Not those who just profess Christ. Are you with me? But those who are genuinely united to Christ in regeneration. They are eternally forever secure in him. Because it's God who is keeping us, just as it is God who is saving us. It's also called the perseverance of the saints, um, other names for this doctrine. But this is what we see playing out here, that God made a promise to his people that he would keep them, guard them, protect them. And he did this exactly in Israel's life, even when their, their direction was just consistently downward. God was faithful to his own name and to his own people. This proves really how secure they actually were, not because of anything they did or were, but because of all of who God was. Let me see if I can give you an image of this because I think this doctrine this morning played out in Israel's life as well as understanding last week how Israel was even called and put together can sometimes be a lot to take in doctrine. So let me just kind of see if I can give you an image to kind of wrap your hands around. And this has been very, very helpful for me this week. Let's just picture this as you or me or, you know, this is us. And what God does is this. He reaches from the past in election and puts his hand on us. He calls us before the foundation of the world. He knows us. Now, he doesn't call us and know us because of what he knows we will do in the future, though he does know that, right? God is all-knowing. He has foreknowledge. But his foreknowledge is not what causes him to reach his hand from the past and grab an election, though he does know it. He, the Bible says, according to his own mercy and purpose, according to his will, according to his grace, 
He reaches from the past in election and takes hold of us. Then the Bible says that he reaches from the future and he puts his hand on us in protection. And so John would, when John would write this, that no one can snatch you out of his hand. You know why? It's because he's been holding you from the past and election. He's holding you from the future and protection. He's going to bring you all the way safely home. Why? Because you are completely in his hands. You are eternally secure in God. He's got you from the past and he's got you from the future. That's a grasp that no one can break. For those who are genuinely united in Christ through regeneration, there is not a chance in hell that Satan will get you. In fact, I was thinking this week, in light of this, this, this trajectory of Israel, and yet God's continued reaching from the past, reaching from the future, and holding Israel together all the way through their tumultuous time. I was thinking, there's probably, and I'm going to tread on some water here. I'll say it like this. These have to be two of the most comforting doctrines in all of Scripture. Because I cannot save myself. I have to have God reaching from the past in election to call me. I, I'm not seeking God. You're not either. No one can save themselves. God has to extend his sovereign grace to us. And guess what? I can't keep myself saved. God has to protect me. If I could be lost again, trust me, I would be. And so would you. There's not a single ounce of, of eternal energy in you that, that you can do to keep your salvation. To, to, in other words, salvation is holy and solely work of God from, from our election to our protection. It's all God. These are comforting doctrines. And sometimes people look at them and, and they try to bark against them. They try to speak against them. They try to act like they don't exist. But we are missing the point of both of these beautiful doctrines that secure us eternally in Christ because they show that, that God's saving of us and God's preserving us of us is totally God. And would you really want it any other way? It can't be any other way. It is all God who in spite of us keeps his promise to us and we find that it is always for us. Isn't God grand? Isn't he amazing? And I see his preserving power so beautifully displayed in these simple verses that list the kings of Judah and their demise over hundreds of years. Let me give you four what I call light bulb observations that will help highlight the spotlight. The big idea is kind of our main spotlight, okay? We just want to see that clearly in this list of names. We want to understand what God's doing here. It's kind of the underlying doctrine of, of this uh, section. But there's also four, I'll call them just little light bulb observations, things that will help us personalize this big idea. Let me give this to you kind of quickly here. First of all, Observation one, God keeps me even in the worst of times. Now watch this. And even 
when the worst of times were brought about by my sin. <laughs> and to that, the church should say, hallelujah, amen. Are you with me? Be thankful that, that, that God is not at the mercy of your sin. But instead that your life is under God's mercy. So that's just observation one. I, I just can't help but think about Israel's history here. And these list of kings' names. I, you know, their disobedience was their responsibility. And yet we find that God was faithful to his own name and to his covenant in spite of them. Protecting them and preserving them. So let's just be thankful. First of all, that God keeps us even in the worst of times. Second observation. God keeps me ultimately from Satan's destruction and condemnation. Now listen to me very carefully here. I was thinking about Peter when he denied the Lord three times, right? That was one of his worst times, wouldn't you agree? He not just once, but emphatically three times tried to, to distance himself from uh, knowing the Lord. Now, Christ had told Peter earlier that that would happen. Of course, Peter said, no, not me, never, right? And then in the middle of that conversation, Jesus said something quite interesting to Peter. He said, Peter, realize something. He said, Satan desires to have you. What if Jesus told you that? What if he said, Keith, Satan desires to have you. You see, there's something bigger going on here than just difficult things on the external, than just outward trials. Satan wants to do more than just attack you physically, give you a bad day, things like that. He's not just after your body. He wants to damn your soul eternally. You see, the, the ultimate thing he's after is to get you to not believe in the promise of Christ. In fact, this is what he was after here ultimately. If you want to know the, the meta-narrative reason why there was such destruction and dysfunction in the line over and over, it's Satan's attack to try to stop the promise of God in bringing Christ as the Messiah. He's after the lines, what he's after. You can see it back in Genesis. You can see it in the Kings. Satan's thinking, if I can stop the line, if Christ doesn't show up, then, then there's no chance anyone can be saved, Right? That's what he's thinking. And it shows us his end game is not just to, like I said, to give you a bad day, to store the finances or to make your life miserable. Satan's actually after something far more important, and that's your soul. He wants you to disbelieve that Christ is God's promise so that you don't gain God and heaven and pleasures forevermore. This is what he's after. And it's in the middle of this that God is keeping his people secure. He's keeping you, watch this, as Paul would say in Romans, from Satan's condemnation. In fact, he said, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Hallelujah, church, amen. So Satan's ultimate goal is to condemn you, to damn you. But to those who are in Christ, that will never happen. There is no condemnation. Hallelujah. So, so God is keeping us, protecting us, preserving us in the worst of times, in the times in which Satan's ultimate intention is the worst, 
Number three, God keeps us through all kinds of different means. Let me give you an example. Remember the Old Testament character Joseph who was sold into slavery and then imprisoned in Egypt? I mean, his, his, there's a 10-year period in Genesis 37 to 50 that's pretty rough for Joseph. But he ends up as vice president in Egypt. And none of you had taken the course he took. You wouldn't have taken the slave route or the prison route. But he, he ended up as vice president. Why did God ordain and allow these things to happen to Joseph? Because he had to move Joseph to Egypt. Here's why. Because years after he lands as vice president, he's used to actually provide the food for the children of Israel. There was a famine in the land. God used the famine to drive the remaining members of Israel to Egypt where they could get food. Now watch this. They go to Egypt and they realize, oh, this is our, our long lost brother, Joseph. They have their reconciling moments. Joseph gives them a place to live, gives them food. And at that moment, Israel's very small and they begin over the next several years to repopulate and they grow to a massive people. Isn't that interesting? That God actually used a famine, prison, slavery. He used all those things to get Joseph where he needed to be and to get his people where they needed to be to preserve and protect them. See, God uses all kinds of means to actually protect and keep his people. This does not mean that the power is within those means, okay? The power is God's, but God uses anything and everything to make sure he keeps us. This is why I'm so adamantly against the prosperity gospel. Because God, throughout the scriptures, has used all kinds of items, both good and bad, to make sure his people are intact, protected, preserved. And we don't always see it in the moment, do we? We see the back side of the tapestry. Like, man, it looks confusing. All these threads. Who's doing what? But when you flip it over, it's a beautiful picture of God's preserving power. So I don't know what you're looking at right now, what you're in or staring at, but I can assure you, if you are genuinely united to Christ, God will keep you through it all. He will carry you, and you are eternally secure because of him. Last observation is this. God's promise to keep me does not negate my responsibility to obey him. I was just reading through some of the exilic period. Uh, Daniel is a book that describes some of that. And I find it interesting that both Daniel and three other Hebrew men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, did not think, well, we're going to be here a while. This is 70 years probably, so well, let's just take it easy. And after all, God's got this. We're his people. Uh, we're being disciplined, so let's just take it easy. This is a foreign country. We're not under Jewish law. We're not, we'll just not obey God. Actually, the opposite. While Daniel's in captivity and could have eaten of the best of meat, what does he say to the king? He says, king, I'll just ask if you don't mind if I still continue to observe the Jewish dietary laws. It's his goal to still obey his God. Do you recall the three Hebrew children when they all were supposed to bow down and worship the idol? They didn't bow down, even though they were looking at a fiery furnace, right? So, so here's what I love is that... Um, God's protection of us and God's promise to preserve us does not suddenly breed in us laziness. It doesn't cause us to say, well, if, if God's gonna preserve me, big deal, I won't do anything, I won't obey him, exact, exactly the opposite. In fact, any doctrine that breeds laziness 
selfishness or presumption is, is incorrectly understood. Because true doctrine, man, it breeds good works, obedience, and service. So that's why I say, God's promise to keep me does not negate my responsibility to obey him. Just four kind of light bulb observations that, again, bring our attention back to the main truth we see in Matthew 1, 6 through 11. And that's this right here. Say it with me, church. God powerfully preserves his people and accomplishes his will, not because of us, but precisely in spite of us and yet for us. Only God could do that. Only God could keep his hands around you from both the past and the future. And in the tumultuous roller coaster of your life, continue to weave it all together so that he brings you all the way safely home. What a glorious God we worship. So I want to end this way this morning. I want us to build a fortress of scriptures around this principle around what's underneath Matthew's intent of this second set of 14 names. This poetic numeric defense of Christ's rightful um, journey to the throne in which he shows this trajectory of Israel being just consistently downward. And yet we're seeing, wow, but, but Christ still came. God had his people. They returned. They rebuilt. This is God doing what only God can do. I want us to bring a, a number of other scriptures to bear upon this. And I want to build a fortress around your life. Something you can stand on and stand behind. So that when Satan comes to you and makes you think, well, you're no longer a Christian. You're not really saved. You can stand on these verses and say, no, in Christ, I am powerfully preserved. I am eternally secure. Let's read some together, can we? I'll start by reading a few to you. Here's what Peter would say. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Say it with me, church who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you're being kept and guarded for something in the future. So here's God's hand in the future coming to protect you because his hand from past and the elections got you. And man, God's got a two-handed grasp on you. He's gonna keep you guarded all the way to the revelation of Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39 I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth and I love this next three nor anything else in case I miss something nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can pull you away from God's love? Say it church, nothing. Nothing can sever that bind and, and break that chain. By the way, it's in these verses where it says that if God be for us, who can be against us? So that's why we say in our, in our big idea, it's God's powerfully preserving hand that keeps us and accomplishes his will in spite of us, yes, and yet it's for us. Wow, 
These doctrines just shore up every bit of comfort we have in Jesus, don't they? Look at these next verse. John 10, 27 through 29, Jesus says this, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them what kind of life? Eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So you've got the, God's hand from the past, God's hand from the future, and within his hand, you've got Christ's hand. You've got the double grasp going on in all kinds of directions. Man, being in Christ is the wonderful treasure, isn't it? It's a beautiful comfort. In times when we look at our life humanly, we think, man, how did that occur? And why did I do that? And man, I'm a mess over here. And why did I sin there? And man, I've got a trail of... Yet to those genuinely united in Christ, he promises eternal life, a spiritual posture that no one can rip apart. Let's continue reading. 1 John 5, 18. We know that everyone who's been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. And the evil one does not touch him. Isn't that great to hear? Jesus Christ is protecting you. The devil can't touch you. Man, praise God. Next verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, say it with me, church, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Only God could do that. And he's not going to sustain you just till the end of tomorrow. You've not got an expiration date on your eternal life, okay? But God's going to preserve you because of his power all the way until the end. And at the end, you'll be found guiltless. And man, who cannot rejoice in that? Because none of us are, right? Man, we're the opposite. We've got sins galore skeletons and closets full of bones and yet because of Christ's mercy and God's grace he will sustain us and keep us and then declare us guiltless here's what Paul would say in Philippians I am sure of this that he who began a good work in you say it with me will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ who's bringing it to completion God is again he does his work in spite of us, and yet it's for us. But it's God's work, no doubt. Here's what 2 Timothy would say. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, say it with me, church, be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now how will this happen? Say it. He who calls you is faithful, he will surely do it. There's the two-handed grasp. He's called us in election. He's now uh, reaching forward in protection. He's called us, he'll do it, and he'll make sure that we're blameless when he comes. Wow, God is powerful. Here's Jude 1, our next to last verse. And I like the way Jude mentions this twice. Here's what Jude 1 would say. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and say it with me, kept for Jesus Christ. To get the idea that, 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 that God's holding you and keeping you and guarding you. Until when? 
the day of Jesus Christ till the very end. And this last one's my favorite. So would you stand with me? And can we just read this beautiful doxology that declares that it is all God who is preserving us and keeping us just as he did Israel, just as he did throughout the line to make sure that Christ did come and was the Messiah. It is God who's gonna keep us all the way to the end. Let's read this beautiful praise to our Lord together. Can we, church? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Hallelujah, church. We hope you enjoyed today's message. For more messages, visit firstfamily.church forward slash sermons or subscribe to our podcast feed. Thanks for listening.